Hi team, welcome back to Becoming a Doctor. I'm Kira, a third year medical student at the University of Birmingham. And I'm Lucy, a second year medical student at the University of Cambridge. Welcome back to our podcast series where we bring you honest insights about life as a medical student, discuss current affairs and talk to guests to inform and motivate you on your journey to becoming a doctor. In this episode, we'll be talking all about the recent news about the Prime Minister's admission into intensive care. We'll talk about what that actually means and our thoughts on the reporting surrounding the Prime Minister's health. Fortunately, Boris Johnson is now recovering well on the ward as of the 9th of April 2020 when we are recording this update. However, the topics discussed in this episode are nonetheless still relevant as thousands of patients remain in intensive care. Also, it will help contextualise what is happening inside hospitals across the country so you have a bit more information behind the news you're reading every day. You might be thinking, what the heck has this got to do with becoming a doctor? I'm sure you've all heard about wider reading and how essential this is for your medical application. But I must admit, it's also very critical beyond this as medical students too. Yeah, it absolutely never ends. And with that team, let's dive into this episode. So I thought it'd be good if we discussed a little bit about whether we think the Prime Minister's um, status and his role has impacted his healthcare potentially. Because there are some things going around on the news and even my parents were asking me, Kira, do you think he's been prioritised and given a bed because of his status? And I guess my thoughts on this are, there might be a certain a certain element of that, but really, if we're so short on beds and it's really critical deciding who gets beds and who doesn't, if anything, this would tighten up, perhaps in my, in my mind, it would tighten up who they let have a bed and who they don't let have a bed. I don't know what you think, Lucy, would you agree? Yeah, I definitely would. I think a lot of the government responses about how we all need to be very pragmatic and, you know, very serious when we think about who we prioritise for beds and making sure it's fair and easy access for all of those that are in desperate need of it. Um, the only thing that does concern me, though, with whether the Prime Minister is receiving special treatment is that some reports are saying that he's, you know, sat up in ICU, he's conscious, he's awake and he's not intubated. Um, yeah. So. I'm that's I don't know for those of you who aren't aware about what the state of people in ITU or ICU are is that they're normally unconscious they're a very very dire dire condition and they're not usually able to sit up and talk um so that is one thing that concerns me what are your thoughts yeah and then I guess touching on that you mentioned that we've been told lots of things like there was a news article I read that said a doctor said he'd had four litres of oxygen and all these details about his care and his treatment and how he's feeling uh, being broadcast to the whole world. And I was, I, part of it doesn't, it doesn't sit quite right with me that we have such strict laws about confidentiality. And if it was me in that situation, would I want people to know how I'm doing? Would I know, mm. want people to know how, how many litres of oxygen I've got or what my condition is? And yes, I can see that the public are, have a vested interest because he's our prime minister. Yeah. But I don't personally think that that should overshadow the foundation of confidentiality and doctor-patient relationships. Well, and I, I think it depends if, if it's information that the prime minister's choosing to release because he knows in his position, maybe he feels he has a duty to release it to the public to maybe yes. um, stop widespread hysteria and panic that we've got no leader in the country's in an absolute mess. Yeah. But then... When I saw the article about a doctor saying that four litres of oxygen had been used, I thought, I don't think, unless, I don't, I don't know the full story, I don't know whether the PM was like, or whether the doctor asked the PM for his permission to breach confidentiality and say about this, but I just think if, 
I don't think that's necessarily appropriate or professional for a random doctor to be commenting um, because I guess we don't know if the doctor is involved in the patient's care there's lots of speculation yeah. going on as well yeah. yeah I think one of the things that worries me is that if if this information hasn't come from the prime minister through this doctor is what about his family that might hear this information for the first time from this random doctor instead of from the prime minister himself and that's is something that really concerns me because you sh family members shouldn't be receiving information that's not from the person themselves yeah absolutely especially as like patients that we're hearing about visitors being restricted and contact with family being made much more challenging by the fact that there's staff shortages so um if patient if sorry if patients relatives aren't there how are they going to get that information it's going to be much more limited so they might actually like you said get it from the media and i just don't think that's appropriate when i was reading a bit up about this was some news articles were talking about his exercise status like his whether he smokes or not how much alcohol he drinks and honestly some of the stuff I read I couldn't believe my eyes it was just like cra crazy talking about his diet what like literally yeah. life his weight like talking about numbers how much he'd lost by doing this and that and I mean he himself had written some of it in a column for the telegraph and discussed his weight and diet there which I don't have a yeah. problem with as such because it's coming from him but when other people are speculating yeah it's one of my bugbears I just don't like people that aren't qualified talking about things that can really impact other people such as diet and weight loss and exercise particularly when it's on such a widespread mm -hmm. media platform when people have the ability to just say oh yeah you should definitely stop eating all seven days of the week it's the best way to lose weight and then millions of people across the rail road road <laughs> across the world would um, read this and then follow it without it necessarily being supported by any scientific fact yeah i feel like this is a whole other rant that we could get on to about yeah information and the qualifications of people that are giving it but I think let's let's move on a little bit now to talk about what actually happens in ITU so I think it's quite interesting how before the Prime Minister was in intensive care there were obviously people in intensive care suffering from coronavirus but not very much was said about it on the news it wasn't very very commonplace no one heard about it whereas now literally on that evening they were having people asking them what happens in intensive care they wanted to know so much more about it and I think it's just it's very yeah interesting and I'm I'm not impressed with how the media just thinks something's important if it happens to an important person if that makes sense and I, a lot of people have forgotten about yeah but anyway let's try and explain for you guys what what it's all about so first of all what is a ventilator so this is one of the things that might happen in intensive care it's not all about ventilating patients although a lot of patients might need to receive it especially for coronavirus there are other organs in your body which will need supporting as well so your kidneys your heart most commonly probably yeah so intensive care is really important for patients who can't support their normal systems by themselves so a ventilator is there to support the respiratory system because your normal neural and like nerve mechanisms that normally control your breathing and your heart rate aren't supporting themselves for whatever reason and that's why we need these additional measures such as a ventilator yeah so a ventilator is a machine that takes over the work of breathing when the lungs aren't functioning as they should do and this can be due to disease such as in the case of the coronavirus and where there's um problems with the lungs and in this case 
um, they're talking about too much fluid in the lungs so you can't actually have effective gas exchange but in some cases it can be due to in other scenarios problems with the control of the lungs and the regulation via the nerves and the brain communication to the lungs as to how to work so that is another reason why someone might need a ventilator ventilator is called invasive ventilation because the patients in order to be ventilated they need to have a tube an endotracheal tube passed down their trachea into their lungs and that remains there throughout the whole time while they're being ventilated so that they can get the oxygen deep into the lungs. I think that's just one of the reasons I was quite surprised when I saw that despite the fact that the Prime Minister was in intensive care he was able to speak because if you do have um, one of these endotracheal tubes in your trachea then you're not supposed to be I able think to they, speak. they said that he so. wasn't intubated he wasn't on ventilator so that's probably why yeah which is yeah. strange that I see but I guess so other so other types of ventilation which are non-invasive methods which might be happening on intensive care units but are increasingly happening on the wards from some webinars I've been listening to includes things called CPAP and BiPAP it's not really important what they do but I guess the key difference is they don't involve a tube, a permanent tube, it's more delivered via a face mask. Um, and from what I was reading about, some people were concerned that with COVID-19 positive patients, if the face mask isn't really tightly sealed, there is still a risk of transmission of coronavirus through droplets um, outside of the mask and to the patient to the other patients in the ward and staff that are caring for them. So this is why you may have seen some pictures of patients in plastic bubbles i don't know if you've seen that lucy like from italy around their heads yeah and so yeah. these are oxygen hoods which are designed to their type of non-invasive ventilation because you don't have the tube but they're designed to reduce the risk of transmitting the coronavirus because it's your whole head is in a plastic bubble yeah it's like pp and a ventilator in one yeah it's yeah, amazing exactly. i wonder if we'll see more of those around after after this pandemic so that'd be interesting to see what stays and what what goes again yeah definitely so just looking at there was a paper i found and the data was from the inarc case mix program database amazing so in order, yeah in order for us to discuss this data they wanted us to say where it's from and have to say the case mix program is the national clinical order of patient outcomes from adult critical care coordinated by the intensive care national audit and research center for more information you can contact them okay now that's out of the way <laughs> So it was saying that patients that don't go on a ventilator in the first 24 hours in an ICU survive 83% of the time, whereas those that are put in put onto a ventilator in the first 24 hours have a much lower survival rate of just 32%. What? So, yeah, that was really interesting. I was I was quite shocked by that, and obviously we can't speculate about the prime minister's condition because we have literally no idea what's going on. That seems really backwards to me. So patients that aren't ventilated in the 24 hours have a higher chance of survival yeah i think it's probably because the patients that they ventilate are in a worse condition to start with so they're more severe and that's why even with their more intensive care regime they're still less likely to make it perhaps yeah i guess i was considering it more on you've got the same patient who's in the same condition that's very bad and let's just not ventilate them and somehow they're going to survive Mm. but no okay that makes more sense thanks yeah and it's just quite interesting looking into how they collected the data so what they were doing was the critical care units have been asked to notify this organization as soon as they have an admission with confirmed COVID-19 and then after that they have to report lots of other data as well as well as doing everything else they normally do for more patients with less staff uh, (laughs) more stress (laughs) I just think it's obviously research is so so important but it's 
I think people forget as well, not only are the healthcare service having to deal with treating the patients, they're having to kind of deal with facilitating research on top of it as well. I think it's a whole other episode, Kira. I know it is, it is. And in this study, there were 2,621 patients with Mm. um, intensive care. And like when they kind of did the results of it, there was still 1,559 still in intensive care. So they didn't really have an outcome as such. 346 died and 344 had been discharged alive. So that meant that 50.1% died and 49.9% had been discharged alive, which is so, I wasn't expecting it to be that close. Also that, yeah. Yeah. But I think part of the reason why the figures look like that is because it's biased towards patients with a shorter care duration because then they'll have an outcome. Whereas all these patients that are still in critical care, we don't know the majority of them might make it or not. Then just some interesting facts and you can see where the PM fits into this. So 73% were men, 27% were females. Boris is a man. <laughs> nice one, hero. Mean age for admission was 60.1 years. Boris is 55, so around that age. And the important thing is, like, we don't know why the stats look like this. And I think the first step is always to identify trends with studies such as these. And then the next step hopefully will explain the trends and that's what I'm really interested to see why is it this case and especially the men because that's quite a big difference in terms of percentage of men to women yeah Mm. yeah I think one of the other things that you mentioned was that how many people are still in intensive care so the study isn't that conclusive at the moment I think that's a really important point to bring up is about we can't just think of um, scarce resources so we know that beds are scarce and ventilators are scarce. We can't just think about it in terms of pure beds and pure ventilators because it's more about how long patients are going to be using these services. So it's not just that we've got a limited amount of them, it's that we've got a limited amount of them and patients are going to need them for a long duration of time. And so it's better to think about it in sort of, I don't know, like a beds over time. It's like ventilator per time, beds per time, rather than just pure resources. Because if you have if you considered a war, an ITU where you have patients that have a really, really high chance of survival, but in order to meet that chance of survival, they have to stay in the hospital in the ITU using the ventilators for a very, very long duration of time. If you compare that to a ward where there's a lower chance of survival, but they only need to spend a couple of days in ITU on ventilators. Yeah. In that second scenario, despite the fact that you've got a lower chance of survival, you actually get more patients into the ITU to use those essential resources so you'd actually have a higher chance of survival i think that's a, a coming into play a lot with covid19 because it's not just that we've got little resources it's about how long people will need to be using these resources that's a really yeah. trying problem and just moving like from that point actually that's a perfect way to move on to the next point just because i'm quite interested in health inequalities and bits like that so i thought Gosh, if people are having to stay in intensive care for, it was saying on average from memory, I think it's that about five days they need to stay in for. But yeah. obviously in the UK, like intensive care is like a really tough treatment regime. There's lots of stuff thrown at them, lots of drugs used, lots of staff required, um, lots of equipment needed. And yeah. I just thought, God, what what if we were in America and things were charged for literally yeah. as you got them? So I did a bit of research. So from the Peterson Kaiser Health System Tracker, they did a bit of research about what COVID is likely to cost someone. So for on average for pneumonia, 
if they had major complications or comorbidity, it would cost someone without insurance $20,292. Ouch. Yeah, that's an awful lot. And then it said if you had a respiratory system diagnosis with ventilator support for 96 hours or more, $88,114. Kira, that's literally more than the cost of my medical degree. Honestly, it, it shook me so much. So, and I, start, I, I dread to think how many people maybe wish they don't get better because knowing how they'd cope with that amount of debt afterwards and that's for 92 hours how many days is 92 hours four four days okay and if you don't get better after four days you're in there for eight days that's like that price of a house it's just nuts to think about and yeah yeah i think that's one of the now i think one of the things that shocks me most is that before coronavirus really kicked in there was so much negative media against the NHS saying that it's not good enough and we need something else. We need something better to support our nation. And now it's sort of just done a complete flip mm. and everyone's clapped, supporting the NHS. For, and the, I know. Donations, yeah. I think it's a time of crisis that's really bringing everyone together to really support the NHS, which I think is incredible and has been in need for a very long time. Yeah. And I think another point is this, this like, initial we can't just think once they're discharged from intensive care they're fine so there's a thing called post-intensive care syndrome that even once you're recovered enough to be discharged there are often cognitive psychiatric and or physical disabilities that remain for months years who knows how long afterwards so just some examples cognitive you can have thinking and judgment problems psychiatric can be mental health conditions ptsd perhaps and then physical disabilities you might have neuromuscular weakness from all the muscle degeneration if you're lying in intensive care and able to move and things like that obviously it's very individual but an impact on the family as well if they've witnessed a distressing event like that so I think it's really important that the care doesn't just stop yeah. after intensive, intensive care. I think often people think, oh, intensive care, that's the kind of end of the road, that's the maximum. You either come out of it and you're fine or you die. Well, maybe those are two options, but you come out of it and you're not necessarily fine. Yeah. People still need support. And if anything, you might need more input than what they came into it with, if that makes sense, for different areas. Yeah, I think it's very easy to say, oh, it can't get worse than this when you're in intensive care. And perhaps it can't get worse but it's definitely not going to go back to normal so it's important to think about the repercussions of COVID-19 not just in this crisis mode that we're in now but in terms of long-term care for these people coming out of intensive care I think that's a really good point Kira. Yeah absolutely so I think that wraps up our fourth episode we've talked quite about quite a lot of stuff there so we've discussed the news article about Boris Johnson being admitted to intensive care We've discussed a little bit about what happens in intensive care, discussed some studies. We've also talked about kind of general implications in the long run of intensive care treatment. Make sure to hit subscribe to be notified when our next episode is released. And as always, we'd love to hear from you guys. So make sure to comment on the blog and follow Medic Mentor and tweet us on Twitter at MedicMentor1. Don't forget to keep an eye out for all of our future episodes absolutely comment on the blog any thoughts questions things you like things we could do differently anything you'd like us to talk about next and we'll be checking it regularly so i think that's it that's it from us take care have a good one guys